Welcome to the Annals of Internal Medicine podcast for October 5th, 2021. I'm Dr. Christine Lane, Annals Editor-in-Chief, and I'm looking forward to telling you about what's new in the journal since our last podcast. First is a micro-simulation model that estimated a far greater mortality associated with the COVID-19 pandemic than suggested by the numbers of recorded COVID-19 deaths. Focusing solely on numbers of deaths due to COVID can underestimate the pandemic's effect on young and middle-aged adults who have a longer life expectancy than older, sicker adults. Understanding the disproportionate mortality rates by race ethnicity is also very important. Calculating years of life lost and quality-adjusted life years lost may provide greater perspective into the true mortality burden of this pandemic. Using data from the Health and Retirement Study, the Panel Study of Income Dynamics, the Center for Disease Control and Prevention, and the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services, researchers from the University of Southern California developed a computer model to estimate years of life and quality-adjusted life years lost due to COVID-19 by age, sex, race, ethnicity, and comorbidity status. The researchers measured years of life lost and quality-adjusted life years lost for 10,000 persons in the population, accounting for key demographic information along with obesity, smoking behavior, and other risk factors for death from COVID. They found that the COVID-19 pandemic resulted in 9.08 million years of life lost through March 2021 with 4.67 million years lost by those aged 25 to 64 years. The greatest toll was on Black and Hispanic communities, especially among men aged 65 years or older. According to the study authors, these findings suggest that the mortality burden of COVID-19 is more substantial than previously thought, especially among younger and middle-aged adults, and is especially high for Black and Hispanic Americans. Next is a randomized controlled trial that found that live shingles vaccine was safe and showed at least short-term efficacy for people taking tumor necrosis factor inhibitors for a broad range of inflammatory disorders. These findings suggest that this live virus vaccine in immunosuppressed patients receiving biologic therapies may be a reasonable option. Tumor necrosis factor inhibitors are increasingly used in the United States and worldwide to treat a range of chronic autoimmune and inflammatory diseases including rheumatoid arthritis, psoriasis, and inflammatory bowel disease, but their use may result in immunosuppression. Compared with the general population, patients with these conditions are at higher risk for varicella zoster virus reactivation, or shingles, due to their underlying disease states and commonly used immunosuppressive treatments such as glucocorticoids. The safety and effectiveness of live virus vaccine are unknown in this patient population. Researchers from the University of Alabama at Birmingham randomly assigned 617 participants receiving tumor necrosis factor inhibitors to either the live varicella zoster vaccine or placebo to determine its safety and efficacy for preventing shingles in these immunocompromised patients. Among those studied, the most common conditions were rheumatoid arthritis and psoriatic arthritis. Tumor necrosis factor inhibitors taken were adalibumab, infliximab, and teranercept, golibumab, and sertilizumab, and concomitant therapies included methotrexate and oral glucocorticoids. Through six weeks of observation, there were no cases of vaccine-associated shingles, and the vaccine was well-tolerated. The authors noted that although vaccine-induced immunity responses were robust, cell-mediated responses were variable and not sustained at one year after vaccination, suggesting that patients may need to be evaluated for booster vaccination. 
The authors concluded that although historically contraindicated, the live varicella zoster vaccine can be safely used in those using tumor necrosis factor inhibitors. Cardiovascular disease is the leading cause of morbidity and mortality in patients with type 2 diabetes, who are also at substantially elevated risk for heart failure. Recent meta-analyses found that both GLP-1 receptor agonists and SGLT2 inhibitors reduce the risk for major adverse cardiac events. Current guidelines recommend both therapies for patients with diabetes and atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease and recommend SGLT2 inhibitors for patients with a history of heart failure. However, there is a lack of randomized trials directly comparing the two therapies for cardiovascular event prevention. To fill this gap is a large population-based cohort study published on annals.org on September 28th. This study found that sodium glucose co-transporter 2, SGLT2 inhibitors, were associated with a reduced risk for hospitalization for heart failure compared with glucagon-like peptide 1 receptor mm -hmm. agonists when initiated for treatment of type 2 diabetes in patients with or without cardiovascular disease. Researchers from Brigham Women's Hospital and Harvard Medical School studied data from Medicare and two U.S. commercial claims databases for 370,000 patients with type 2 diabetes, including more than 100,000 with established cardiovascular disease, to evaluate whether SGLT2 inhibitors and GLP-1 receptor agonists are associated with differential cardiovascular benefit. They found that initiating SGLT2 inhibitor versus GLP-1 receptor agonists was associated with no differences in the risk of hospitalization for myocardial infarction or stroke, and rates of myocardial infarction and stroke were similar regardless of cardiovascular disease history. However, among patients with cardiovascular disease at the time of drug initiation, there was a 10% decrease in risk of myocardial infarction and stroke for those who started SGLT2 inhibitor versus GLP-1 receptor agonists. The researchers also found that initiation of SGLT2 inhibitor versus GLP-1 receptor agonist was also associated with an approximately 30% reduction in the risk for hospitalization for heart failure in all included patients. The absolute benefit in reducing the risk of heart failure hospitalization was substantially greater among patients with cardiovascular disease at baseline compared to those without cardiovascular disease at baseline. The data showed no meaningful differences in the risk for all-cause mortality in those who initiated SGLT2 inhibitor versus GLP-1 receptor agonists. However, among patients with cardiovascular disease at the time of drug initiation, a decrease in the risk of all-cause mortality was seen among those who received SGLT2 inhibitors. According to the researchers, these data provide much-needed understanding of the comparative cardiovascular effectiveness of SGLT2 inhibitors versus GLP-1 receptor agonists in routine care of patients with and without cardiovascular disease and type 2 diabetes. And these data may help clinicians and patients choose which of the two classes of drugs to use. In a new commentary, a group of American College of Physicians leaders call on employers to provide tactical support to physicians and other clinicians to ensure that they can safely care for patients and support one another during the COVID-19 pandemic. The authors say employers must move beyond suggesting stress reduction activities. They call upon every health system, hospital, and clinical practice to adopt a variety of recommendations, considering recommendations in conjunction with their frontline conditions to decide which would be most impactful and feasible in their current environments. Their recommendations include ensuring physical safety by reducing clinicians' risks of contracting COVID through vaccination mandates, policies and practices that ensure universal masking, and adequate ventilation in work areas, 
and access to personal protective equipment, providing professional development and training in the areas clinicians identify as causing emotional stress or moral injury, providing sufficient time during clinical encounters for members of the care team to address COVID-19 and vaccine misinformation, supporting clinicians who are parents by offering flexible work schedules, support groups, and supporting policies for reducing SARS-CoV-2 transmission in school settings, reducing administrative tasks that are not mission critical, adopting robust anti-discrimination and anti-harassment policies to acknowledge and mitigate harm, offering free and confidential resources to support clinicians' mental health, updating credentialing and employment applications to remove unnecessary questions about mental health and physical health diagnoses, actively encouraging clinicians to use vacation and professional development days, implementing suicide prevention strategies. Implementation of these recommendations will be challenging in many settings, but the authors argue the risks of not taking action are dire. Read the Moving on Being a Doctor essay by Dr. Rana Audish that was published coincident with the ACP commentary and I think you'll agree. Moving to articles published on October 5th. The first October 5th article reports a large observational study that found that intensifying antihypertensive therapy by decreasing the dose of a current medication was associated with better maintenance of the intensified regimen compared with adding a new medication. However, patients prescribed an additional medication had a slightly greater reduction in systolic blood pressure. Researchers from the University of Michigan studied Veterans Health Administration data for more than 178,000 persons aged 65 years or older with hypertension and a systolic blood pressure of 130 milligrams of mercury or higher and taking at least one antihypertensive medication at less than the maximum dose, who underwent intensification of their medication regimens by one of two strategies, adding a new medication, 25% of patients had this strategy implemented, versus maximizing doses of existing medications. This was done in 75% of patients. The researchers looked at the association of each method with two different outcomes, intensification stability and follow-up blood pressure. Compared with maximizing dose, adding new medication was associated with less probability of sustaining the intensified regimen. Both strategies reduced systolic blood pressure, but adding a medication had a mild advantage over dose maximization a 1.1 millimeter of mercury greater reduction in mean systolic blood pressure over 12 months. These findings suggest that maximizing dose might be simpler to maintain in older adults with multiple comorbid conditions, but with a trade-off of slightly less systolic blood pressure lowering effect. Healthcare providers should base their decision to add a medication or maximize the dose of existing medications based on the patient's current treatment, clinical state, and preferences. The healthcare needs of our nation's veterans are unique, and the Veterans Health Administration service needs to be supported and strengthened so that it can continue to meet those needs. A new position paper from the American College of Physicians says that the Veterans Health Administration is a crucial part of our nation's healthcare system. However, it faces many challenges that include an aging infrastructure, implementation of new electronic health records, and achieving access and care continuity within non-Veterans Health Association clinicians. The paper details the challenges currently facing the system and makes a series of recommendations aimed at strengthening and preserving the system for future veterans. Go to annals.org to read the recommendations. This podcast began by highlighting a study of the mortality burden of the pandemic, and it ends with another study of this issue. Researchers from the National Cancer Institute, the National Institute for Minority Health and Health Disparities, 
and the Pacific Institute for Research and Evaluation use data from the CDC National Center for Health Statistics to estimate deaths by month, year, sex, age group, race, ethnicity, and cause for March 1, 2020 through December 31, 2020. They found that compared with the number of expected deaths based on 2019 data, 477,200 excess deaths occurred during the pandemic, 74% from COVID-19. The remaining fraction were attributed to causes including diabetes, heart disease, cerebrovascular disease, and Alzheimer's disease. Black, American Indian, Alaska Native, and Latino men and women had more than double the number of excess deaths than white and Asian men and women after standardizing by population size. According to the authors, differences in COVID-19 risk, hospitalization, and death by race ethnicity can be attributed to structural and social determinants of health with established and deep roots in structural racism. Studies have shown that Black and Latino persons are more likely to have occupational exposure to COVID-19 live in multi-generational households or more densely populated neighborhoods, and have less access to health care and private transportation compared to white persons. Prior to a successful mass vaccination program, American Indian, Alaska Native, reservation-based communities were at further risk for infection due to lack of infrastructure and chronically underfunded health care facilities. Inequities need to be addressed with urgency and cultural competence. In an accompanying editorial, Drs. Lisa Kufer and Yvonne Commodore Mensa from Johns Hopkins University write, quote, This study highlighted the importance of identifying subpopulations that are being harmed by the ongoing pandemic. However, the data do not reveal the extent of trauma that communities of color experience due to these deaths. The mental trauma of losing family members and friends is incalculable in this context of racial tension and enduring social injustices that have outlived the civil rights movement. Unless health and social policies are instituted to curb these excess deaths, persons of color may experience protracted community bereavement, end quote. That brings us to the end of this podcast. Additional new material that we find if you go to annals.org includes the latest ACP Journal Club, Annals Graphic Medicine, and Annals on Call podcast offerings. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll return in two weeks for our next podcast. In the meanwhile, stay well, take care of yourself, and I hope you'll spend a little time exploring annals.org. Thanks to Beth Jenkinson and Andrew Langman for their technical support.